Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. Welcome to another episode of Changing the Story. We've got a fantastic guest today, Brian Dolan. He is the CEO of Verdant AI. He is a thought leader, mathematician, data scientist, and cyberneticist with more than 20 years of hands-on experience. Prior to starting Verdant AI, Brian co-founded companies like Deep6 AI, Curious Inc., and Discoverix. He's also a former data science leader at Yahoo and served as the director of analytics at Fox slash MySpace. Brian also co-authored the book, Mad Skills, New Analysis Practices for Big Data. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here, Brian. So Brian, as a visionary, what is the story that you want to bring to the world? Um, I believe as a cyberneticist that artificial intelligence reflects culture. And now that we have this tool to examine culture, we can study it and improve the world for everybody. We can bring better, better justice, greater justice, greater equality, and investigate things like racism, uh, investigate things like poverty from a cultural point of view using artificial intelligence itself as the tool. I, I find that fascinating because that's somewhat in sync with some of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Absolutely. How, how would we use AI for this? I mean, are we using AI to analyze our societal culture? We're trying to do something different? What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that let's, let's take a simple, non-controversial example before we dive into something like <laughs> as, as lofty as the United Nations goals, right? And when you're doing, building a, um, a restaurant recommender, you put in the things that you think are important, like price, uh, location, cuisine, um, whether or not it's good for a family. So you're telling it things about, you're telling the AI things that are culturally important. And you're telling it when we're experiencing culture, these are the things that, that make a difference to me. And so we're inherently building a culture with a lot, even the simplest recommender systems that it can get more and more complicated. And that's one starting point. And then when you start with the computer vision and policing, then we start getting into, you know, more uh, touchy subjects like are we training it to teach it that all people of a certain color are criminals? And that's because we're putting in the things that appear to be important to us at the time. It's really interesting to hear you say that. I've heard it said before that uh, you can really understand a society based on the searches that it puts out on Google or Bing. You understand what matters most to people. It kind of reminds me of subtext. Uh, so what you may talk about, or sorry, what you may say is different from what your body language is, is connoting. And so we may profess to be interested in something else, but our search engines, uh, searches really speak to what we're, we're most interested in. Uh, and also kind of reminds me of the Foundation series. I don't know if you ever read that by Asimov. Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> they, begin to, they begin to use data to assess the psychohistory of, of the people. Uh, is, is that an accurate uh, version of what you're talking about here? I think so. I mean, the Foundation series was incredibly optimistic on the limits, and, or actually the lack of limits of the study of psychology. It was, um, but it was a great idea that we could look at what people do rather than what people say. And mm -hmm. the interesting part about that, it was around the 1950s when B.F. Skinner was writing about, um, you know, how people are basically a blank slate. And that, that debate about how much of a blank slate are you back and forth um, has been going on for, you know, a century now. Uh, and I, I do think you can use data to inform yourself, but I also think you need to have a good model, like an internal model of how the world works that needs to be updated by data before you can really make any uh, lasting or important decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I, 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 I agree with that. And I'll challenge a little bit of what Michael was saying about the search stuff, because I think all this is really important about context. There, there's actually a study, or a, at least a, a study and paper published, I think, by some major university about the search, which were the most racist counties in the United States. And they did it on the Google search of the N-word, mm -hmm. right? And they, a lot of people were shocked by the results because they're not areas you normally consider racist. But it's like, what, in what context are you doing the search for, right? Are, are you doing it because of hateful? Or are you doing it because it's in a song title or something else? Right. So I think, you know, we're talking about analyzing society and some of these other things. We have to take context into account. How do we actually do that, though? That's a great question. And, and like, we don't at the moment. Like, well, let's just be blunt. We don't think about that because there is a bit of a hubris that we're going to just look at history and predict the future. And, I mean, that's not working out for anybody right now, especially in the retail space, right? We think we can look back and see how many times people have searched on the N-word and decide how racist they are, not realizing that there's a, you know, I'm 52 years old and or 51 years old, and there's a band from uh, the 90s called Niggers with Attitude that I search for all the time because I love their stuff. Um, so you're going to run into that overlap and the person who has this hubris to think that, oh, you put that word into your search, that's what you're doing, is, is, um, is exhibiting exactly what we mean about you need to have a model of the world and you need to put into your recommender and into your analysis everything that is culturally re relevant. And as you do so, it grows. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, Neil, um, what you had to say remind me of this. Uh, I had a friend that was writing uh, one of those uh, cop shows. And so in order to do so, he had to do all search for all kinds of stuff, even including things like child pornography. And it would look awful if someone were to get his laptop. He would joke around and say, I'm not into these things. I have to research them for what I'm doing. And so I feel the same way when it comes to my own searches. When I'm doing a lot of writing, I have to look into this stuff. So I, I completely understand what you're saying there. Um, going back to what you're mentioning, Brian, I mean, it seems like we're talking about this model. We're talking about a, a worldview uh, mm -hmm. for just a moment. And but, and I, I completely understand what you're saying there. What is the model that we go off of? Because so much of us, you know, we have our own model of the world. We have the model that our parents gives us. We have the model society gives us. Then we have the lens of history, although everyone has, or, I mean, there are different interpretations of history, um, especially if you're looking at someone like... Um, the person that wrote the People's History of the United States. Howard Zinn, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, his version of, of history is quite different from the history that I learned when I was in high school. So how do we get clear on which model is, is more accurate in depicting what's, what's going on in society? Well, yeah, we don't, right? Like, <laughs> you know, I, I like to fashion myself as the, the AI guy who says, I don't know all the time. <laughs> I do think that the, the debate is way more important. It's, you know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. We're never going to come to a pure model, but we have a journey we're traversing. And if you look at the history of cognitive psychology back from the 50s to the present day, it's changed quite a bit. How do we make decisions? You know, people there are the populist versions, like the Blink version. Um, you know, that we make these gut reactions and those are our best reactions. That's, you know, fine in some situations if I'm picking out which taco I want to eat. Um, but the, the, the internal knowledge that you have is really sort of hard to decipher. I was talking to a, a neuroscientist buddy of mine who said that people are spending billions of rows of data and tons of compute time to get a car to do something that a bee can do natively. <laughs> like, that's a great point. You know, like if B can do it with that much resources, like no, you know, very little resources. And it's taking us terabytes of information to get a car to do it. So we are fundamentally modeling knowledge wrong uh, when we do a lot of our analytic uh, efforts. 
there are other lots of ways to model knowledge. Um, and the debate about is this the correct way is the one I don't think is had often enough because people don't look into the theoretical underpinnings of what they're using. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your, your comment about modeling knowledge wrong is, I, I think, fascinating, actually, because especially when it comes to AI, and we always talk about we need a lot of big data and that's the fuel for artificial intelligence. <clears throat> We're now coming to the conclusion it's not really big data that you need. It's probably more medium data. And the truth is we don't understand what data is relevant or meaningful. I mean, the, the example most often cited is, you know, you want to teach a, a machine a foreign language, it takes about 100 million, every 100 million words to become fluent. But for a human child, you only need 15. Mm -hmm. So is it really the words or the phrases that are really the more key thing? We haven't deciphered which ones are the valuable medium data. Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, back in the early 90s, there was this emergence of this thing called the complexity theory that I was a big fan of. Mm -hmm. And um, there was this program that came out called BOIDS, D-O-I-D-S, and it modeled flocking behavior, and it's become one of the um, central models for, for group dynamics ever. Um, you could teach a neural net how to make a bunch of birds flock and create, and, and create like this flocking or grouping behavior where they uh, change all at the same time, or you can implement three very simple differential equations, which are v three very simple rules. Uh, and you get the exact same behavior. And those rules are like, <clears throat> stick to the middle, don't run into anything, and go the direction of the leader, whoever the leader happens to be. You put mm -hmm. those rules in, you model them as a differential equation, you get beautiful flocking behavior. As opposed to like, do we need to watch 100 billion flocks and come up with a trillion you know, flocking events in order to teach it? Like there's, if you put the time in to understand the phenomenon, um, you can model it much more effectively, you can uh, relay that knowledge easier, and you can get a lot more out of predicting how it will change when things change. That's, that's fascinating. It reminds me of Oxen's Razor, looking for the simplest way to explain something rather than something much more complex. Well, let's take this, let's take this idea here and actually let's go to more uh, complex realms. So let's talk about the moment that we're living in right now. Right now we have perhaps the most tense moment in, in recent mem memory in the United States, if not the world. Uh, we have a culture that's very much in flux. We have a disease that's been politicized and we have division across this country. How could we begin to use AI and a cultural a mechanism to begin to understand where we are and to begin to also make a better world? Well, I think we're doing that de facto right now. Um, I'm not going to say I don't know this time because I have a strong opinion on this. <laughs> um, and I feel like we're doing that de facto right now in the same way that you um, learn from touching the stove. Um, I was on a phone call with a client yesterday and we were talking, they were a retail client and they were talking a lot about they can't use any of their historical data now. Mm -hmm. But they feel like they have an advantage that their analysts understand the market phenomenon so deeply that they're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, then this is, you know, showing a limitation of the approach, especially the last 15 years since we started talking about the big data world. I'm not poo-pooing on big data. I'm just saying that it has its place, right? And we're seeing right now that trying to use our models that were data intensive to model the future without understanding what the dynamics of the system are is, is bound to failure. And we're seeing it, we're seeing like a bunch of holes in that approach at this exact moment. Um, and I find it fascinating. I mean, it's a little bit terrifying because it's stuff you've gotten used to using. <laughs> you know, I've done a lot of time series analysis. Um, you know, you're kind of like, oh dear, what am I going to do? But if you understand your market and you can implement these, you know, three simple rules, you're able to see how you can, Go someday use your data again, but right now use your understanding and your domain knowledge even more. Sure, sure. 
So data is obviously one of the big factors and you know, there's even the Fortune 500 companies will tell you that they have their data challenges. I mean, if they're flawed, their gaps, it's a, it's a problem, but what about bias, right? What if the data is biased or what if the people training the models have implicit bias, right? Yeah, and they certainly do. Um, and they also have, uh, even very educated people have a willingness to ignore the data when it, when it conflicts with their bias. Um, and I'm not even talking on the national spectrum. I'm talking about a company I used to work with a long time ago. They had a sort of what you call like a corporate myth that uh, the amount of money you pay for an ad placement will affect your click-through rate. Uh, if you pay more, you get better click-through rates. Uh, so I did a double-blind experiment and I said, okay, show me which of these paid more. Um, and, and nobody could, right? And they, but they knew they had ingrained it so deeply into their um, into their belief system about what makes the market move that they couldn't unsee what they'd already seen. Uh, you know, it's sort of like seeing Sasquatch in a video. You see a see Sasquatch now, you're always going to see Sasquatch, not a guy in a costume. <laughs> sure. So going back to just a moment, a second ago, we're talking about the culture, the culture as uh, evidenced by big data and AI. Mm -hmm. What is what is your thoughts as to what is the culture showing us at this moment? What are, what are we seeing through big data? What is your, your sense of our culture at this moment in time? Well, digital health, I think, is a great example of that. In digital health, all of the electronic systems that have been constructed, well, not all of them, many of them are constructed around billing. So when I was at um, one of the companies I started a while ago, was looking at uh, finding patterns in cancer patients using the unstructured notes of the physicians. And we would find that um, most of the stuff around actual patient care did not make it into the EHR because it wasn't associated with billing. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you're feeling well or unwell, if that's a trivial example, does not go into the EHR because I can't bill the insurance company for well or unwell. And I don't mean that sound like I'm indicting, it's just like these systems were designed for billing to keep the hospital lights on. Right. Um, and one of the things I did previously is work a lot on medical language to understand the holistic patient from what the doctor is saying. And it's a fascinating way to view the world. Just look at what the doctor says. Can you understand the language of the doctor? You don't have to generate language of the doctor. You don't have to like find the subject in the noun. What you need to do is find the patterns in their speech and the patterns in the way they're expressing themselves so that you understand what seems important to them and now that we understand what seems important to them, we've understood the culture of care, and we can try to do uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence on top of that to better understand. These physicians know how to care for patients, and they know when a patient is going over the edge. So if we can understand what they're seeing in their language, then we have a better chance of uh, helping them. Right, and I think what you're saying is you're extrapolating that in, in the wider milieu, right? You're talking about this is just one instance, is healthcare. Yeah. So if you could give us more examples as to, okay, that's one subset of the culture. What are mm -hmm. some of the other uh, instances, other things that we can talk about that are reflective of our, our larger culture? So in terms of how um, like data gets collected, data usually gets to collected against some sort of financial metric, right? So we are, for instance, all very concerned about uh, ocean health, right? It's an extremely important thing. But ocean data is extremely rare because there's not a financial instrument to make you collect ocean data. Um, I worked in a, uh, an ocean, a marine biology lab a number of years ago, and we would collect small amounts of data around kelp and you know overall reef health uh, based on like how clear the water was, what nutrients were taken up, how many predators were present, you know, uh, how many hold fast there were. But that data 
And that data was really great in developing these models. So we have a fairly strong understanding of what makes a reef healthy. Um, but we had to really work to get that. And in the larger society, people are not collecting that data and not analyzing that data in environmental health. We know that environmental health is personal health. We know that pollution causes anxiety, causes anger, and you know leads to crime. Um, but we're not collecting that data because we don't have the financial instruments. So I think to wrap up that financial instrument development is actually the key insight there. Like we don't have a financial instrument that, that helps us pursue better, healthier reefs or better and healthier inner urban environments. We just don't have those instruments yet. And we can look, sit back and go like, the reason we don't have the data is because society hasn't made it important to them. You're talking about special ocean health is, I think it's interesting, right? Because there's obviously a, a cost barrier in some cases, mm -hmm. but I think Ocean Health Alliance has Snotbot, right? They're actually using drones and AI to collect whale snot mm -hmm. and you know, they can look at the water, the algae, the, the crustaceans, all that stuff in there and get at least a, a better picture of the local health of that, that local area of the ocean. But mm -hmm. if, you know, if they try to do that, without the technology, I think they say what Snapbot does in a day would take seven days with a, you know, a ship with all this equipment and a crew of at least, I think, 12 people, right? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's great. The technology is fantastic. The, 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 the thing from a cultural perspective, you want to look back and say, like, how is this being motivated? How is this being funded? Is this being funded by a grant from, you know, a wealthy individual? Or is this being funded by market forces, which means it's it's, it's uh, important to the wider culture, the wider culture of consumers who want to move money through a system that supports this. And I love it when the, you know the philanthropists come in and they put in a hundred million dollars for ocean health. I think that's fantastic. I think it um, one of the reasons packaging is so efficiency is so efficient, and that people are moving towards you know greener packaging is because it's a consumer-facing activity and there's a financial instrument to do it. So just seeing those gaps and like who else is funding ocean health? Well, nobody, like governments aren't doing it, uh, markets aren't doing it. That tells you a lot about why we feel this is important or why we don't feel that's important. And it limits the amount of data we can collect because the, 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 the philanthropists are gonna go in and collect data along a very specific vertical as opposed to, and so it doesn't, it doesn't explore the data space the way retail does. Like retail explores the data set because everybody's always looking for like, I want to create a new product to give you, and I'm going to collect data against that. So if I understand correctly, I mean, or what you're saying is kind of follow the money when it comes to data, where mm -hmm. the things that the companies are spending money on to research reflects the attitudes uh, as to what we care about and what we value. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I believe that to be true. And as a, as a sort of a former hippie, and maybe still a bit of a hippie, it's a little bit disappointing. But I also think that it's really great in the last couple of months to see people, brands that believe in optimism and believe in hope, um, putting money into researching optimism and hope, mm -hmm. you know, and I, that's great uh, because they know, like for instance, apparel companies, you know, they want to be seen as this, this positive image. And they know that as they make themselves the go-to place for positive image, because I'm wearing your tie or whatever it is, yeah, the youth are gonna wear the tie. Um, because I'm wearing your, your apparel, I'm projecting optimism and youth and hopefulness. I think that's great. We want to associate that. And there's a, there's a financial instrument that promotes optimism and health, you know. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're hitting on an interesting subject in this whole area because, you know, people ask, like, how can we haven't done more 
we haven't advanced more maybe social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, or how come we're not really seemingly making big strides in artificial general intelligence. And the big thing is always it's the ROI, right? It takes mm-hmm. a lot of work, a lot of money, a lot of effort to build even some, I'll call it like base tools. And because, you know, all, most of these are, are commercial focused, they're focused on the ROI. So they're looking to do something small, start generating return rather than tackle some of these big problems. Is, is that something that you see in your work, Brian? It is. It's quite a bit. And it's one of those things where, you know, everybody wants to tie it back to ROI. And I think that one of the things I like to challenge my partners on is maybe the ROI doesn't come from exactly where you expect. Maybe the ROI comes off to the side and is a side benefit of some other interesting pursuit. So we're working with a company that does um, a biomass supply chain network. And what the initial goal of the company is, and still is the goal, is to allow people who want to trade in sustainable non-agricultural biomass, things like manure, things like giant reed, um, things like corn stover, they want to be able to trade in those things. There's no liquidity in that market. So we started building this system. We're going to hopefully get it out this summer. But along the way, one of the things uh, that came up was that a lot of these companies, like major oil companies, are purchasing a lot of um, uh, sustainable uh, agriculture for, for thermochemical feedstocks, so they can turn it into energy. Like you can turn bamboo into electricity, you can turn it into energy. And so, okay, that's good, but here's the other side benefit. Once you've done that, you've now sequestered 100 million tons of carbon. And by doing that sequestration of 100 million tons of carbon, you can put that into your ESG financial report and people will invest in you to align with their values. Right. So, like, wow, that's cool. You know, like we now have this secondary way to reward you for doing that so that you can do what you feel like is right and get that rewarding and then create a positive feedback loop with your investors. So that's been a really exciting part is tying into another uh, company we're working with that does these financial metrics and saying, okay, now we get to report back how much, you know, you've reduced uh, greenhouse gases. Right. I mean, it seems like we're also talking about incentives, right? If it's ROI, it's incentive. What's, what, is, what is incentivizing us? Um, and, and I think uh, my father said this once, one time to me, he was saying that uh, poor people, there is no political party that's representing poor people. And so, you know, when it comes to things that seem to be losers or not helpful from a financial standpoint, unfortunately, we aren't investing in those things because of the incentive of the, the ROI. How can we begin as a culture to go after these other things uh, that may not seem to have an ROI on its face, but also lead to greater and better uh, breakthroughs. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think that there have been some sort of populist movements who claim to be representing the very small, both on the right and on the left. And I don't feel like they carry it the last, you know, they don't carry it into the end zone. There's a lot of things that are left on the table. Uh, I grew up rather poor. Um, you know, I had food stamps. I was on food stamps for a while. And, and I lived in, uh, you know, not the best neighborhood. Um, and the day-to-day needs are so immediate and so urgent that you can't mm-hmm. think at a grand scale. Um, so from the perspective of the person who's trapped by poverty, who can't get out of poverty, who sees only drug dealers and rock stars as the only people that make money around them, um, and they don't even really make the money you think they do, you know, um, from that perspective, it's hard to feel represented by anybody. So I think a lot of rage politicking goes on for exactly that reason. But from the other side of like, how do we dip into that daily life and um, and change it and like analyze it and um, and uh, um, improve it. Well, I actually think the game theory allows us to look into that pretty easily. There's a new movement called Mean Field Game Theory about how the actions, the individual self-interested actions of many 
interacting with society as a whole can help them guide or can help you understand what their real motives are. I think if we model these things, like why do people vote this way? Mm -hmm. um, you get a lot of information around what the real motives are and what the causes are, not just like their motives, but the mechanisms. And once we understand the mechanism, we can change what they call the mean field, like the overall uh, uh, culture. We can change that to align with different mechanisms and not just make it this abstract, you know, we have to be nicer to people. It's, it doesn't have to be that. It can be a lot more precise. Yeah. So I, I find that fascinating, right? And I, I know a lot of people who are working in this area, but I think one of the challenges people are finding is that, you know, it's not like one single global culture and you have to kind mm -hmm. of adjust your models based on locally things. I'm not just talking about different countries, but right. you by the United States, East Coast, West Coast, right? Right. How, how do we adjust for that? Does that mean we need like local sample sets, local involvement? Is there a way well, to scale this up easily? <laughs> right. Well, I live in I live in Northeast Los Angeles, and this neighborhood was a traditional Jewish neighborhood until about 25, 30 years ago. Then it became uh, very Filipino, uh, and then very Latino, and now the sort of you know the the white middle class is moving in. So I'm in an extremely diverse neighborhood. So this notion of like I'm going to come up with a cultural model that works beyond the boundaries of my property it's already moved you know i can walk about 25 feet and then it doesn't work anymore um because you know there's seven or eight languages i've kind of spoken within five houses of mine and i love that right but i think that it doesn't require so much the data getting back to an earlier part of the conversation i think it requires that we take the time and put in the effort to understand what the sociologists and the the um, social workers and the psychologists already know we take the time to understand that and come out of our sort of like, well, it has to have a trillion rows of data to be an important phenomenon um, and go like, what are you really seeing? And how do we build that into maybe a system of differential equations that require no data and only your hunch, you know, um, build that into a system that we can model and we can reproduce um, in order to understand it better. That's why, like I said at the top, I was thinking AI, I believe that AI reflects culture and we can put into it the insights of these clinical workers, the insights of physicians, the insights of social workers, and see how those dynamics play forward and understand it better and see like, oh my God, when we make this assumption that people won't, you know, people won't work if they're on, uh, if they get a monthly stipend, we can make that assumption, see how it plays forward. And we know from some experiments, it works, some experiments, it doesn't work. Uh, but why does it work in those cases? And I think that with a better understanding of the underlying driving forces, we can model those and then we can put the data against those and, and make some progress. Brian, this is an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, we've loved having this with you. How can people learn more about what you're doing? How, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, we're at Verdant AI, www.verdant.ai. Um, please, you know, reach out to us. We're a pretty friendly bunch. Um, we like to talk about these things. Um, we are always looking for interesting entrepreneurs and interesting projects. We work both with co corporations, we work with um, venture capital firms to get our studio companies funded. So we're looking to talk to just about anybody. And sometimes those are really crazy ideas, but honestly, some of these really crazy ideas turn into very fascinating conversations. Um, so I'm looking forward to hear, hearing from anybody. Please go to the website. We're info at verdant.ai is probably the quickest way. But if you look at the site or you uh, reach out to us, we'll get back to you for sure. Awesome. awesome. Sounds like you're driving innovation. I hope we are. We're trying, right? We're definitely in the seat and we're pushing really hard on the pedal. <laughs> Might go into a pole. Don't know. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thanks for being on, Brian. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was really gracious of you. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.